the only thing I should really value is my time because you can always make money, but you can't make more time. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur and investor James Hong, who is best known for having founded the fun viral project turned multi-million dollar dating property, Hot or Not. He's also an active angel investor and has invested in more than 80 startups. In this week's episode, James talks about experiencing virality back when it was rare, the importance of understanding people's motives when designing products, the drastic differences in scaling today versus in the 2000s, what it was like turning down multi-million dollar offers, then to sell his company for more than what he would ever imagine, and fast forward to today, trying to juggle being a founder and a parent. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Well, thank you, James, so much for joining on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time. Sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So what was it like and how did you get started building something viral back in the day when virality was, I guess, relatively new and rare? Yeah. So we kind of used to think a lot about virality back then. And basically, the goal for us was to build a product that we thought people would want to spread. And so we kind of thought about things from a kind of human motivation standpoint of what kind of content would people want to pass along. And at that time, pictures of people were still fairly scarce on the web. And so, you know, like today, you see pictures of people all over the place on Instagram, on social network, and so on. So it's not as big a deal today. Although, someone who's really attractive or you know a really funny person or just pictures are still very compelling content and are still shareable but back then it was even more so because user generated content was so scarce and you know we kind of thought about human motivation and what interests people and what gets people excited and so on and what kind of things would they want to share and we kind of worked backwards from there and you know it's kind of a it's a very human thing to want to look at people and also to kind of show yourself off so kind of like a voyeurism and exhibition sort of factor that goes into it's kind of embedded into our dna a little bit so these were very natural things that were happening and so when we had the idea for hot or not well when we generated it we were kind of thinking about what kind of content would be something that people would want to pass on and would get people excited and so on and at that time just pictures of people was it and uh, so we kind of added this hot or not layer the rating layer actually as a means of interaction with the website but in reality it was more about just voyeurism and exhibitionism at the time and then we added the rating system kind of just as a means for the user to interact. And do you have a psychology background? No, but it's by hobby and interest. I like to read a lot of psychology and a lot of books about motivation and books about user behavior and so on. Yeah, I mean, so I think like being when you want to study product and fundamentally what you're doing is you're trying to study users and trying to understand users and to understand them, I think you have to understand people. Users are people. And so I think that is actually a good starting point for where people should, if they want to come up with good products, they should think about psychology, try to understand people, try to understand users, what they like, what they don't like, and why. A lot of times people just think about what has worked in the past, but in reality, um, it's always best to go back to kind of like your first, your basics and try and figure out why they might be motivated to do certain things and what are the kind of like human nature drivers of those behaviors because things change. And so what worked in the past may not work in the future. But yeah, I think it's always good to kind of study psychology and try to understand people if you want to build a good product. What are some of your favorite books on psychology or motivation? Uh, you know, what's funny is like there's a classic book that a lot of people know about, I think, are ready that I actually I still will buy it but I used to buy it for all my product managers and whenever I meet someone that I feel like needs to understand product management I would always send this book influenced by Cialdini I always felt like that was kind of a really good book talking about things that could get people to act 
But yeah, it's a very easy, easy read, but it just goes through different aspects of what drives people to act. It kind of has kind of a more direct marketing type of feel to it, but you know, it talks about scarcity and uh, social proof and all these kinds of things that you read about more often now. But you know, 15 years ago, not that many people, product people had really read it yet. So anyway, yeah, I highly recommend it. What was the first year like of growing Hot or Not? Was it all up into the right or there are a lot of kind of challenges? It was up into the right, but there were a lot of challenges. The, the challenges we faced back then don't really, wouldn't exist today, at least for the product that we had built. When we had started, we had, when bandwidth was about $1,000 per megabit per second bandwidth. And, you know, today you can buy it for a couple bucks, so if even, you know, probably less than a dollar, actually. And, you know, we didn't have Amazon web hosting or the cloud-based services weren't really out there yet. So our problems that we had were pretty different than what you would experience today. But I think some of the things that we did to deal with them would be applicable today. You know, for instance, I guess the main thing that we really thought about was, you know, we had all these costs to run today be a cheap website to run. But back then it was, I think the first week we were running, I calculated that it was going to cost us about, you know, $150,000 of a year to run. And it was doubling every day or something like that. And so what we did was we thought about, well, what what do we have and what don't we have and what do we need? And to realize, well, we had a lot of attention because we were getting a ton of press and what we needed was machines to scale. And what we realized was that right around that time, the managed hosts were starting to come out. So this is before cloud hosting, but back then you could rent the machines. You still can from like Rackspace and so on. So we actually called Rackspace and said, hey, you know, look, we're growing. We are like a poster child for, for your service we don't have upfront money, but we need to scale and so on. Can you help us scale? And we can like talk about how we're using you. And so we were able to basically leverage all the attention we were getting into free hosting for a year, which gave us the time to work out a business model that would pay for the site. Another thing that we did that was kind of scrappy was we said, okay, we have all these, the main driver of our cost was actually bandwidth on serving the pic- the pictures. And so at the time, there were all these services like Shutterfly and Ophoto, which were trying to get users who had cameras, digital cameras, because at that time, most people still didn't have them, and trying to get them as users, and they were paying bounties for them. So we said, hey, could we cut a deal? You know, can we, instead of us hosting the pictures, can you host the pictures, and we'll send them to your site to upload their photo to your site, and then we'll just we'll just use the photo off your server to our users. And so in that sense, we not only got rid of our costs by making Shutterfly or Ophoto host the photo, but they also paid us for it. You know, the question of like, what were our skills? and challenges early on, most of them were just scaling. Those same problems would not exist today. But I think the thing that could be learned from what we were able to pull off was that we were just really scrappy and kind of came up with unusual win-win scenarios where we got what we wanted and we were able to leverage what we did have to pay for it and kind of come up with unique deals that basically saved our hide. And what was the process like of selling the company? I launched Hot or Not in early 2000. Yeah, we launched in October of 2000. We sold it in February of 2008. You know, in the meantime, we turned it into a dating property as well. And so we were kind of the first people to do speed dating online like this. If both people, you know, today it's Tinder, you swipe right. In our case, it was if you clicked yes, but kind of we were the first ones to do that kind of modality of dating sites where you just kind of go through a ton of pictures of people and say who you like. And then if they say they like you back, then you can write each other. We actually charged for it. So we had it where if one of you was a paid member, 
where you could write each other, but it, at least one of you had to be a paid member. So it was kind of like drinks, like one of you has to buy drinks. And we had it running kind of as a cash cow because we never raised money. We were always running as a S corporation and we ran it for about eight years. And then well, around 2004, about four years in, we got really tired of running it. It's just, we were kind of bored of it. So we kept running it, but we weren't that happy about it. And then around 2007, we were kind of concerned about the downturn in the economy coming. So around late 2007, we decided to just get rid of it and sell it. Uh, and we, I was kind of at, the, at that point liquidating everything I had out of the stock market and so on. And so, yeah, so we made the decision to sell it. And we really did not run a process that I would probably run today, except for the fact that we were just kind of like so tired of it that we just wanted to get rid of it at that point. And so the process for us was I just started, I just sent a few emails to a few people saying, Hey, we're thinking about selling this. I called my co-founder and said, how much would you want to sell it for? And he said, I don't know, X. I just told other people, well, we'll sell it for X. And one of them said, okay, we would buy it for that. And so we just did the deal. Wow. What made you like liquidate out of the stock market for the crash? There were a lot of warning signs before the crash, before the equity crash. I mean, you could see default rates going up in, in the markets and so on. So it just seemed like at some point it was going to break and it seemed like it was moving in that direction. And so uh, somewhere around October 2007, that's when I started liquidating stuff. And that, I mean, that's one reason that we sold it at that time. But in reality, we were both so tired of running Hot or Not. Um, both my co-founder and I had our very kind of more idea people and more entrepreneurial and less. By that point in time, Hot or Not was generating a lot of revenue, but it was just not going, you know, we were not really working on anything new with it. Mobile hadn't really happened yet. And so we were at at that point, just for the last three or four years, we were so tired of it that we just wanted to move on. And you mentioned in a previous interview that you were around $50,000 in debt from college. You turned away a job uh-huh. that would pay that debt and instead yeah. kept going towards you know being an entrepreneur. What made you yeah. shy away from the traditional secure path to, to the unknown? It really boils down to one thing, which is that my friends and I, we talked about it and we all realized that the one thing that we really had going for us at that point in time was our youth. Not because we were smarter or because we could work harder necessarily, but mainly because we had no liabilities to cover. We didn't have kids. We weren't married. We didn't have mortgages. And at that point in time, when you have basically nothing to worry about except having enough money to you know eat and put a roof over your head, you're able to take a lot more risk when you're young because of that. And what we realized was that taking a salary, even if it was a higher salary, at that point in our life was almost like selling ourselves short in that like we were selling the opportunity cost of being able to take those risks at that time. And we kind of figured that we had a runway of, you know, maybe 10 years to do that before we all had mortgages and families and things to take care of. It was kind of a calculated decision just to say like, was the amount of money that we were going to make having jobs, you know, worth that sacrifice? And actually, so we had made that decision. And then my friends and I started, we had made a list of like, different ideas. And we started another company before I did Hot or Not. And that was right when the market crashed. So we started it before, right before the market crashed in 99. And But we had built a startup um, where we got a basically what is an aqua hire, although back then it was unheard of. But we had an offer for, I think, around $6 million. So we would have each made about $1.5 million investing over five years. But you know that was back when salaries were like $60,000 a year or something like that for starting engineers, or maybe even lower, 50. So it was 
was substantial. It was like a 5X bonus every year for five years. It was substantial, but what we realized is that like by doing that, we were giving up our five years of time to work on other ideas and taking those risks. And what we really learned was that when you're young, you can take those risks. That's pretty much for most people, the only time you have to be able to take those risks, at least until you're much older and have a nest egg and have paid off your house or whatever. And so to us, it was kind of like now or never. And that's why we made that choice. Wow. So y'all had a, a pretty massive offer to go work. Somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't insignificant, you know, like one and a half million each, you know, in 2000 today, that would probably be like, you know, I don't know, 3 million or something like that. Uh, it depends how you price for the inflation, but it was not unsubstantial. But at the same time, we realized like, you know, we would be selling our youth basically. And we ended up shutting that company down instead of selling it. And then two of us worked on Hot or Not. And then the other two worked on another idea that they ended up getting bought out by Google in 2003 or 2004, and they became Google Mobile Maps. We basically, the, the idea was basically to build Waze, but it was about seven years too early. There was only one phone that had GPS at the time, <laughs> so it was just way too early. But anyway, that's what was built, and then Google bought them. So in the end, I mean, you know, it was the right call. We all made a lot more money by doing it, but you know, I guess you could argue that we were just, it, it was the right call in retrospect because we all did better, but you know, maybe that was just luck. So. Did your family or friends think that y'all were crazy? You know, most of my friends and family thought we were more crazy doing a startup at all. Like back then, people went to big companies and very few people did startups. Like it wasn't like today where so everyone's doing startups. Back then, it, we were seen as crazy for, yeah, so I guess we were crazy at every level. We were crazy for doing a startup and then we were crazy for, you know, not selling. <laughs> but, you know, all's well that ends well, so... And what would be your advice to young people trying to figure out what they want to do? I don't know what it's like coming out of college these days. You know, like when I came out of college, it was all about going to grad school or going to the big company. And that was kind of like the badge of honor. And really not that many people did startups back then. So I don't know that my advice would carry over. If someone out of college starts a startup, are they seen as crazy today? Or is that like, oh, yeah, totally. Like, that's what you wish you should do. I'd like, say, what, what is it like? I'd say it's more commonplace, but it's still crazy. I mean, the thing to do is graduate school, you know, and go work and get a high paying job. Yeah. Okay. I like I, like I said, if you have confidence in your skills and your abilities, then if it were me coming out and if I could kind of like, you know, give myself advice, I would have told myself, don't go to a big company, go start something or at the very least go work at a startup where you'll learn kind of like what a startup is like and it's you know it's and it's also more fun and exciting on average not always but on average because the company is taking more risk there are a lot of advantages i think of being at a startup for one at a big company you're going to tend to be more pigeonholed you know you're going to do X and that's all you're going to do and you don't do Y. But in a startup, you have more opportunity to do more things and be exposed to more things and more aspects of the business. I think that that is a really good experience to have when you're young, especially if you want to start your own company anyway. There's nothing wrong though. I think if someone doesn't aspire to be entrepreneurial or to be an entrepreneur, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking the big company job and just enjoying it. And how do you manage your life and time? What's uh, an average day look like for you? I spend half of my day kind of like hanging out with my kids. I'm kind of like half Mr. Mom. And then the other half, I spend angel investing and helping out companies I've angel invested in. You know, I used to do a lot of consumer internet type of stuff. I've kind of moved away from that. And I'm doing more things related to machine learning and things related to biotech. And let's talk a little bit about angel investing. You've invested in over uh -huh. 50 companies. Is that right? Or more? Uh, probably like 80, 80? 80, 90 by now. Yeah. Wow. What are some of the common traits that you see in the founders that you've backed? In the founders that I've backed that have succeeded, 
succeeded. And in the ones that I passed on that succeeded, I, you know, I came to the conclusion about five years ago that I've done pretty well investing, but I would have done better if I just ignored reading the business plans and just bet entirely on whether I like the people. <laughs> because the people that I tend to like, I think tend to have been successful. The common traits amongst them are they're all very, very smart, but also very, very, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without sounding cliche, but like they think differently a little bit about everything. Like if I'm hanging out with them, I can say crazy ideas that other people would think were crazy, but they're willing to entertain it and have kind of like a fun intellectual discussion about it. When you can have those off the wall conversations and they're not like, oh my God, like you're so weird for even thinking that, but they think it's fun and will engage in it. I found that that's actually a very good indicator of somebody who is more likely to succeed because when they're running their own companies, there's kind of like a mental flexibility on what they can and cannot do in their business in response to some situation that um, where they just are willing to come up with solutions that maybe are not traditional or kind of out of the box. And, you know, you can only kind of come up with out of the box solutions if you're actually willing mentally to be out of the box and kind of different. Do you have any tactics to making hard decisions? Do you have any, when you decided, I don't want to sell my company and waste, you know, five years of my youth working at this company, or I do want to sell hot or not, or I do want to invest in this company. Do you have any tactics for making really, really difficult um, decisions? For me personally, and I'm not saying my framework is correct or better than other people's. It's just, it's just my framework for maximizing my own happiness. I have this philosophy that the only thing I should really value is my time. Because you can always make money, but you can't make more time. We have finite amount of heartbeats. And for me, I tend to make decisions based on like, you know, um, trying to maximize the use of my time. So if I'm not really happy with something or if I don't want to spend time on something, it doesn't really matter to me how much money it could have made. I would rather just go for reclaiming my time to make me happy again. But, you know, like that's how I make decisions. That's not how everyone else makes decisions necessarily. And it's not necessarily going to be right for other people. But for me, like I just look at it as, you know, I have a certain amount of time on this planet. I want to enjoy it. And if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, then I just want to get out of it. And what are some of your biggest challenges right now? Uh, my biggest challenges right now, well, you know, for me, you know, because I'm trying to juggle my family life is probably my priority right now, but that still leaves me enough time to invest in companies and still have kind of like my finger on the pulse of what's going on. It's hard because, you know, it's trade-offs, right? Like everything in life is trade-offs. Sure. I would like to start, you know, a lot of people ask me like, why don't you start another company? You, you know, cause you have a lot of fun doing that. And it's like, yes, I do. And I would have more fun starting a company than angel investing. But on the flip side, then I wouldn't be able to do the type of style of parenting that I want to do. And so I have to make trade-offs, right? So the challenge for me for my life is balancing those two things that I want and trying to kind of find a maximum happiness in a balance between the two things. Um, my biggest challenge is managing those trade-offs. It's tough to balance. You know, as an entrepreneur, you really want to do more. You're always seeing ideas. You're seeing problems in the world and you, or you're constantly thinking like, oh man, like someone should build this. Someone should build that. But at the same time, if you want to spend a lot of time with your kids, it's really hard to do both. Right. Because a startup is like a newborn. It's not just a kid. It's a newborn. And like, it just takes constant attention. You know, like actually even two or three years ago, I wanted a YouTube kid um, app, like an app for my kids to watch YouTube because the YouTube app was not really good for kids to watch because they would end up on really bad content, you know, because they're always saying recommending content at the end. Right. And this was before YouTube came out with YouTube kids, but I decided, you know what, I needed this. So I was just going to build it because there was just nothing out there that really fit my needs. Yeah. I, so I learned, I learned to code in I, uh, Xcode. 
and Objective-C, and I built an app called Keiki that I still use today. In the middle of building it, my son, you know, this was just a hobby, right? But, like, you almost can't help it as an as an entrepreneur. Like, you're, like, constantly thinking about it. Like, what can I do to make it better? What can I make it do to make it grow? And at some point, my son was like, Daddy, when are you going to stop working on Keiki all the time and play with me again? Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> and that was, like, a pretty... I, that was a moment where I was just like, okay, crap, you know, like, I don't think I can do a startup. Right. right. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even manage, but you know, again, this is, you know, I talked to uh, Evan Williams, a good friend of mine, you know, he started Twitter when he had just had a kid during that, in the early days of when Twitter was really growing. And he has been really good at being able to manage it, like manage that balance. And also Max Levchin also seems to be pretty good at managing work and family. But you know, like, I just, I'm not them, you know, like, I just know myself, like, they're able to do that balance. I'm just not because I'm just more maybe OCD or more undisciplined about it. It's probably what it is. It's probably a factor of discipline. They're more disciplined than I am. And I'm not able to handle juggling both at the same time. And so for me, I have to make a trade off to say, okay, I guess I'm just not going to start a company at least while my kids are young, even though I would like to and I think it would be more fun from the work perspective. You know, I'm just not willing to make that trade off. Have you thought about like uh, a lab? type situation or like a you kind of, I guess kind of what yeah. Max is doing with his his lab have you thought about yeah, that yeah he's got HDF or whatever it's called, it's called now um, I think he changed the name to uh, sci- science something but um, ventures um, yeah I've thought about that but I haven't done it yet <laughs> I mean, like I've seen Max go through it twice now when he started MRL Ventures, which is what Yelp and Slide came out of. And then later he did HVF, which um, a firm came out of, you know, in reality, and Evan actually Twitter what came out of basically obvious ventures, which was a basically a lab incubator, right? And what always happens is they all start lots of projects, but then one of them inevitably takes off. And then they end up running it because it's so it gets getting so big, they're by default the leader, so they kind of take it over. And then before they know it, they're the CEO of this really fast growing startup. Right. It doesn't necessarily lead to where I want to go either. So that's kind of one reason why I haven't done it. But I've I've toyed with the idea and I I like to think that I could do it and not go crazy in terms of my home life. But what are some of the things that you've learned from like Evan or from Max? I don't know. I mean, like, they're no different than all my other friends that, you know, that have done well and some that haven't done well. You know, like, I just think that the commonality between most of the people I like is that they're ultra smart, but they're able to think of things at a meta level. They like things that are slightly odd or different, and they don't mind being slightly odd or different. Every successful person that I know is kind of like that. They're like slightly quirky. Seems to be a commonality amongst, you know, Max, Evan, uh, and pretty much every other person I know in the internet that's built something big. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with James Hong. Thank you so much again, James, for coming on the show. It was interesting hearing about building something viral before the word meant illness, the psychology behind product design, what it was like scaling the hottest startup back in the 2000s, and selling the company in the midst of a financial downturn. All very interesting conversations. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again for listening. And other than that, we have episodes coming out every Tuesday. Tuesday, stay tuned and we'll see you again next week on Off Record.